Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argeris and this week we're talking about On the Trail of the Jackalope, how a legend captured the world's imagination and helped us cure cancer. To help me are two high school English teachers and the author of the book, Michael Branch. <laughs> May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> So this week, folks, we have um, we don't don't do this a ton, but when we do, it's it's always amazing. Is that fair to say? Uh, we have the author of On the Trail of the Jackalope here with us in our d- digital studio. space, in yeah. our di- d- digital studio, um, in our Zoom studio. Uh, Mike Mike Branch is here. Mike is a award winning author. He uh, is an an essayist, a storyteller, a teacher. Um, he once, uh, did a book trailer where he got on top of a car and drove across a desert. Um, one, one more needs to be said. Uh, Mike Branch is here. Thanks for being with us, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation and congratulations on your hundredth show. You guys are doing it strong. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So for, for our hundredth episode, instead of recording an actual hundredth episode, uh, we just um, started writing a book. It started as like a joke on the show about how the butler always does the murder in the, the typical tropes of a murder mystery. Um, and then it turned into a real thing. So, yeah, it's always it, it's always best when you're going to write a book to just back into it by accident. You know? <laughs> Young writers ask me for advice. I, I always say that's the best way to do it. Well, it sounds like that's how the Jackalope book started, right? It's like I've been thinking about Jackalope for 20 years and all of a sudden I thought, well, if anybody's going to write the book on this. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's true. I checked my journals and my earliest entries about Jackalopes were almost 25 years old and I was complaining in there that the word jackalope was not in the Oxford English Dictionary. I was incensed. It's like, okay, the unicorn's in there, the mermaid's in there, you know, this thing doesn't have to exist to exist. Give me a word. And, you know, now it's in there. But yeah, I I just started seeing jackalope stuff everywhere. And and one day I was in my local brew pub and I saw a woman lift a pint of IPA and she had a jackalope tattoo on her arm. And I said, this has gone far enough. I got to figure out what the hell's going on here. (laughs) Enough is enough. (laughs) <laughs> so, Mike, we have this premise on the show where, you know, Ian and, and Joe here are our, our high school English teachers, right? And they kind of bring a book recommendation every week. Um, and, and my role is to really avoid reading at all costs. Um, <laughs> and he does a great job. And, and really try to avoid learning about the books as well. <laughs> he succeeds. <laughs> um, okay. So you write this book about a jackalope. I would have to imagine that you are just sent jackalope stuff constantly <laughs> like okay you're sitting there with a jackalope poster behind you with a jackalope yeah, t-shirt with a jackalope hat I, mm-hmm. if i looked closer i could probably find additional jackalope things That's what's like this? how many jackalopes are in this picture yes yeah it, mm-hmm. it's like a waldo what is the weirdest jackalope swag you've ever received or gift oh, no. you've ever received so far i just want to get a sense Oh man, uh, it really gets very strange. I think the coolest stuff actually is not stuff, it's correspondence. It's people who contact me with their stories. I'll just give you a single example, but man, this stuff pours in over the transom <laughs> daily. My house is just full of yeah, jackalope crap. No My family has staged many interventions that have not taken hold. 
Um, yeah, this stuff is irresistible, but the stories are are the best. And you're right. Now that I'm the jackalope guy, this stuff floods in from all over the world every day. But I'll give you my favorite example from this week. I got a letter from a guy who read the book and said, uh, yeah, you know, I'm really glad you're giving him, you know, close scholarly attention to this important phenomenon. And I want to tell you about my research on the jackalope, which is my tenure project at this particular university. So this guy is a professor and he's studying jackalopes and he writes me this really long, detailed uh, letter. Well, I look it up and he is uh, at a university that doesn't exist. Then at the end of his letter, he says, well, you may not be familiar with this uh, university, but I'm sure you're familiar with the, you know, the bookstore that I work at. Um, it's a bookstore and library in Southern California, and it's called the Invisible Library, and it's in Malibu. So I look up the Invisible Library, and it turns out to be a hypothetical construct that is a library <laughs> that consists only of books mentioned in other books. Nice. <laughs> and, and so. Okay. So people are just blowing my mind every day with this stuff. And this is not to mention all the mundane stuff like, oh, dude, I just saw this jackalope in my backyard or I, you know, I had a fried jackalope sandwich for breakfast. Or have, you know, have you ever heard this story about jackalopes? So all of this folklore about jackalopes is so rich and people really want to share it. And that's part of what I really groove on in this, this whole thing is we've got in folklore, we have, um, you know, many animals that have stories told about them. But part of what's cool about the jackalope is you also have the artifact, right? You have the taxidermy mount, the hoax mount. So when you're telling stories about this animal and people say, I don't know, that sounds pretty outrageous. You march them down to the local bar and say, there it is, right? right? And so there's this relationship between the artifact and the narrative. And I think if we didn't have both, this beast wouldn't have been kept alive so long because there are lots of you know, invented animals from the 19th century in American, uh, you know, folk culture that we don't remember anymore. But the jackalope took root, I think, in part because you could see it as yeah. well as your stories about it. Well, and it, it's so sticky, isn't it? Like, I love yeah. the story from the book where you tell where the, the taxidermist, and I forget which one, he put his name on the back of the mounts all the time. <laughs> and he says, inevitably, at two in the morning, I would get phone calls from bars where these guys were arguing <laughs> about whether or not this thing was real. So I stopped putting my name on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And that guy, that taxidermist told me all kinds of stories. Like, you know, he had made a jackalope for a woman who took it to Australia to give it to a friend, and it was confiscated at customs because they <laughs> thought it was an endangered species and you know so yeah he had lots of great stories but when i asked him because as you as you say joe he would put his name and phone number on the tag on these jackalopes people would call him drunk from all over the country in the middle of the night to to have him settle the dispute in the bar are jackalopes real or not and uh i said so what would you tell people and he said three things one yes i made that jackalope two are jackalopes real? 100%. Three, get some black coffee. Don't ever call me again. <laughs> Just like this old dude from South Dakota, you know, he didn't even smile while he was saying this stuff. He was so far in this, you know. Uh, Mike, for somebody who hasn't read your book, can you share a little bit about what it is? And then if you want to throw in there what the hell a jackalope is, that would be wonderful as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start with, the, with that. Um, a jackalope is a hybrid between a rabbit and an antelope, supposedly. But part of what's weird about it is, um, you know, it's usually made with 
a cottontail, not a jackrabbit. And a jackrabbit isn't a rabbit anyway, it's a hare. And an antelope isn't an antelope anyway. It's so it falls apart quickly. <laughs> yeah. Before you even get started, you don't know what this thing is. But yeah, if you've ever been at a junk shop or a diner or a bar, usually in the American West, but increasingly all over the world, and you see a taxidermy mount of this cute rabbit, but it has antlers or horns, that is the jackalope. Started as this taxidermy hoax but has spun off into every kind of art and kitsch imaginable. So that's basically what a jackalope is. It's a hybrid, iconic, imagined animal uh, that started in the American West and has spread around the world. The book I can summarize really quickly kind of has three main phases. The first phase is I wanted to really understand the folklore, the origin story, the mythology, the kitsch, the humor, like where did this weird thing come from? And so I drive around the country kind of chasing this, uh, this, this journey that I set out on to figure out where the jackalope came from and why it has been so widely disseminated. The middle part of the book is where I sort of say, well, okay, you know, in the U.S. we have our jackalope, but are there analogs to this thing in other cultures? And I do a lot of research and discover that there are horned rabbits in the mythology and folklore of people from around the world, which was really, really fascinating to me. Uh, including, you know, I've found three ancient Buddhist sutras in which the Buddha himself uses the horned rabbit as a teaching tool. So we're talking about, you know, something quite, uh, quite ancient and really widespread in indigenous cultures, in cultures throughout Asia, Africa, um, and certainly Europe. So in that middle part, the global jackalope, I call it, <clears throat> I'm sort of tracing these other connections. And I'm also hanging out with a lot of filmmakers and visual artists and writers and musicians and trying to understand why the jackalope has been so um, inspiring to so many artists. We think of it as kitsch, as ironic, as funny, but many, many beautiful things are done with the iconic jackalope, especially by visual artists. And then the third part of the book is sort of the science story. And that's the part I think readers won't see coming. And it's really quite fascinating that you know, I've been able to put together a bunch of different research to tell the story of the study of the first horned rabbits, actual horned rabbits in nature, which took place in the 1930s at almost the exact historical moment that the hoax jackalope mount was being created by different people in a different place. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll hop over some of the nerdy part, but it was the study of actual horned rabbits that um, allowed this famous virologist whose work I study to prove that a virus can cause cancer in a mammal. And that sounds like nothing, but it was a huge deal. At the time, the scientific community did not recognize that that was possible. And we now know about 10% of cancer deaths globally every year are caused by viruses. So this was a huge breakthrough and it led to Nobel prize winning research that if you follow the dots out as I do in the story, leads to the development of the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is the safest, most effective anti-cancer vaccine we've ever created. So, to, you know, to, to make a very interesting um, science story quite short, uh, this vaccine, which is literally saving millions of lives every year, would not exist without horned rabbits. So, you know, I'm kind of an obsessive researcher. And when I went down into my horned rabbit hole, I wanted to see this thing from every angle, the folklore, the mythology, the art, the science, and ultimately this kind of beautiful arc of the narrative that leads us to, you know, people's lives being saved by horned rabbits. So still funny, still a great hoax, but also a real um, story about uh, how we how we develop vaccines through science to take care of ourselves. And it was a story that was very interesting to write during COVID. This was my COVID book, and I was working on vaccines and viruses 
in parallel with that. So that was pretty fascinating too. I, I wanted to, to ping off of that. Um, so like the, you have some wonderful kind of you know, conceptual abstract stuff about hoaxes and, and tall tales and what this, what this means and, and what it does to us. But like, we've just lived through um, maybe the last six to 10 years have been uh prime time for misinformation and kind of the darker side. And I wonder like if you could talk about, Hoaxes are nice, right? Bat Boy, you got the Bat Boy example. Bat Boy is like stupid and hilarious and, and, and kind of sweet. You you get you arrive at it's kind of sweet. But the the darker side is maybe misinformation and charges of fake news. So like how how does how does the the praiseworthiness of the hoax fit with oh my gosh, mis misinformation is killing people. Yeah, it's a really fair question. And I will admit freely, this is a bad time to be the guy defending hoaxes. <laughs> you know, I'm out there doing all these radio interviews saying, it's not what you think. It's actually really cool. There's a lot know? of Venn diagram overlaps going on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, but I, but I am willing to defend it. And, um, you know, here's how I would start. I would say that there is a vital difference between a con and a hoax mm. or scam and a hoax. There are many other ways to make the distinction. But a con is designed to deprive somebody of something, their property, their money, their self-respect, their, their power, whatever. Um, and the ideal con is one that's never revealed, right? It's a crime, essentially. But a hoax exists to be revealed. It doesn't work unless it is revealed. It's, it is built to, to give pleasure. Um, and the playfulness of a hoax ultimately is one that builds community. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example of how, how this tends to work, not only in the case of the jackalope, but many horned rabbit analogs in other cultures. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just use an example from Bavaria, the, the Volpertinger. It's a horned rabbit that has wings. And in Bavaria, this is a huge part of the culture that uh, when a person comes of age, all the hunters in their community say, if you want to be one of us, you have to, you have to capture a Volpertinger in the wild and we're going to show you how to do it. So they take them out and, you know, here's your bag and here's your stick and here's where you stand and here's what you're supposed to do. And they give them all these elaborate instructions. And then they say, now we're going to go out um, into the forest and we're going to drive the Volpertingers toward you. So you'll be able to capture one and then you can really be part of the community. So this, you know, this dupe, this rookie greenhorn hunter gets set up out there. And so all the old hunters leave. And of course, they go back to the hunting lodge and drink and just wait to see how long it'll take for this. <laughs> This dumbass to show up, right? So when the greenhorn hunter finally standing alone in the forest, you know, has his epiphany that he has been duped, heads back to the hunting lodge and comes in and rounds of drinks are bought and hugs are given. And from then on, that guy is a member of the community. He's in on the joke, right? And he will be part of the community of people who initiate the next person. But nobody would ever use that kind of hoax to try to fool somebody forever or to deprive them of anything. And so this gets played out in the American West all the time. When I interviewed the mayor of the town of Douglas, Wyoming, which is where the jackalope was invented, he said, oh, yeah, I go to these mayor's conferences in D.C. and I just show them postcards of jackalopes and I invite them to come out jackalope hunting with me. They're from D.C. They don't know anything about Wyoming. <laughs> and he loves this. Right. I mean, and he says, yeah, we're. We're a whole town with a joke. We're all in on it. And so I, I think that the way hoax has been, the way that term, first of all, has been misused mm, by interesting. the former president and others mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. problematic. But also um, there's a sense that um, playfulness, that uh, humor, that um, hoax is necessarily mean-spirited or cultish or that it's you know driving towards something um, something dark. And 
And I do understand why that concern exists. Misinformation is rampant. But this is an old, old, old form of misinformation that human beings have practiced in their cultures for millennia. And it amounts to um, working together to have a kind of joke that helps to define your community and that helps to define who's inside that community and who isn't. And um, this stuff is, is, in my experience, practiced in good faith and good humor uh, in the case of the jackalope. There are darker manifestations of misinformation for sure. Uh, but I do think it's important in an age when we're all committed to, you know, the importance of scientific accuracy. I'm the guy, after all, who's arguing for the HPV vaccine <laughs> in the book uh, to remember that, you know, um, great folk stories full of exaggeration and hyperbole and, and deliberate inaccuracy have been part of American culture from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, in the book, I write about the wonderful hoaxes that Ben Franklin pulled off. Um, and it's just part of our culture. And it's something I'd hate to see us lose. It's also a staple of American humor. And a culture that trends toward humorlessness is a culture that is on a very dark path. You know, Mike, you're talking about hoaxes and tall tales. And, you know, after I read this book and I was thinking about it, one of the chapters that stuck with me the most was the tall tale that you wrote in here. Yes. Like, I just kept coming back yes. to it. I thought it was a ton of fun. Um, Mike, I, I'd like to play a little game, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> Please. I, I'd like to list things that you mention in your tall tale, some of them which you do go on to say are, are uh, not factual later. And I would like you to tell us if they are true or not. And I'd like to kind of rapid fire these. Is that Perfect. I'm is ready. That okay? Go. Yep. All right. Do you have an old pickup truck, na truck named Alkali? I do. What kind of truck is it? It's a Ford F-150. Have you ever found a human skeleton? Uh, never. All right. So definitely didn't have a compass in its hand. Um, <laughs> Correct. Is it, is it factual that Mormon crickets were squished so deep that the highway became slick? So slick that it had to be canceled by highway or uh, closed by highway patrol. Slick as ice. All right. And you have, in fact, climbed out of your window and ridden on the roof of Alkali. Yes. And in fact, if you go to my website under the media tab, the uh, book trailer for my book, How to Cuss in Western, shows me doing this. That's I, have it, I have it right here. <laughs> <laughs> Is Caroline one of your daughters? Yes. Did she drive Alkali when she was 12 years old across the playa? Yes, 80 uh, miles an hour. 80 miles an hour. That was my next question. Do white <laughs> pelicans really have a wingspan of 10 feet? Closer to nine and a half. So mm. I'm going to give that a yes. American cheetah vanished 10,000 years ago. Is that really why they can ru run 60 miles per hour? Yep. I've written about this elsewhere. Antilocapra americana, the American pronghorn is 20 million years old, evolved in North America over a long period of time and got its speed running from an animal that hasn't been around for 10,000 years. Did you once in one sitting see at least 100 wild burrows? Absolutely. I did not know wild burrows were a thing. Um, <laughs> are, a thing. are baby burrows called burritos? Absolutely. Not. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Who would believe can, such can I a jump thing? Jump in really quick right here. So I, mm -hmm. I'm by no means. I, I live in Reno, where Mike lives. I'm not a desert rat at all. I've only been here about eight years. I love the desert. When I was reading this section, I, I yeah, okay, now that seems off. I got to the burrito thing. I was like, oh man, well, Mike knows his stuff. I never heard him call burritos, but I, I trust him, you know? I'll, I'll go with Mike on this and burritos. That's so cool. That's the way the tall tale works. You have to establish your authority, and then that allows you to start sneaking stuff in. I love it. My last two questions. You have a daughter named Hannah. Does she, in fact, play guitar? She does. And is music soothing to burrows? Absolutely 
not. That's crazy. <laughs> Who could believe such a thing? I really loved the image. The one, probably the number one image that stuck to me in this book that's full of amazing images, including like fantastic art at the back of some of that like wonderful, whimsical jackalope art you're talking about, is your daughter Hannah chasing the burrow, <laughs> strumming her guitar more furiously to calm it down. I thought it was awesome. So, Mike, thank you very much for clearing up some of those confusions. <laughs> Hey, Litheads, we want to share the celebration. It's been celebration station over here at You Don't Know HQ. Um, nonstop Martinelli's sparkling apple cider, non-alcoholic. Um, lots of sparkles and lots of cider. Um, we want to share that with you, not by mailing you uh, apple cider in an envelope, but by sh- uh, offering you free of charge You Don't Know Lit swag. Yes, we do finally have You Don't Know Lit stickers. There is a form on the website where you click the button that says get a sticker and you can actually get up to five stickers. So uh, go uh, if you want stickers to slap all over your laptops and all over your water bottles and various roadside signs, go fill out that form and we'll be mailing those out to you over the course of the next few months. So uh, looking forward to seeing the You Don't Know That brand spread throughout the world. Mike, I have a question for you. Has has the jackalope community embraced you? Ooh. I feel like, or <laughs> I, have the, have, are you have the people outcast? have the people of Douglas, Wyoming? How are they coming after you? Have they made threats on your life? I'm just wondering. I'm just you. You you are becoming the jackalope man. You're really you know shedding a yeah. light on. The, you're like the guy on TikTok showing how the magic tricks are happening. Yeah. Are, are they? Are you being embraced? You know, it's interesting. You should ask this, Nick. Um, you know, when I first showed up in. Douglas, Wyoming, which, as you can imagine, little town out on the prairie, pretty conservative. Um, lots of hunters, lots of taxidermists. Mm. They were highly suspicious of, of me. Highly suspicious. So, I decided that instead of you know playing the role of the interviewer, I would just drink with everybody I met, and mm. that really helped a lot. So it's amazing when know, they can smooth over. It, it really helps a lot. So yeah, I, I was able to bolster my credibility that way, and eventually, I think they really understood in Douglas and elsewhere that. Um, you know, I'm not an interloper, no pun intended. <laughs> I care about this, man. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool aficionado. And I think when they saw that I was committed, I was for real, uh, they started to open up a little bit. So it, it really has been kind of neat, actually, how welcoming and forthcoming people have been. But it's true that a book that has as many interviews as this book does, it can be dicey territory. People don't always like the way they're represented. And I always try to be honest and respectful. But, you know, folks still have an opinion about how they'd like to see themselves in the pages. So mostly (laughs) people have rolled with it. But I think there have been a few people who... You know, might have craved a slightly more sympathetic uh, approach, you know, yeah. but I'm a, hum- I'm a humorist. I, I have needs. I have to do what I have to do, you know? You just put your phone number in the back, like uh, on the back of the... <laughs> and oh, that way already... people can have a direct communication. There you go. Yes, it's already <laughs> happening by email. I, I, I don't even know whether to call it fan mail because it's usually <laughs> the kind of... It's usually the kind of message where you think to yourself, either this person has a really dry, really brilliant sense of humor, or they really need professional <laughs> help. And and you cannot tell one from the other. It's been charming, but a little disconcerting. Um, I talk to my students about the graveyard for their papers, the things that they like passages, um, ideas, arguments that they they wish they maybe they love, uh, but they, they can't. They can't include because it doesn't fit, because it's too long, because it's slightly... Are there 
stories, interviews, tidbits that are in the graveyard for On the Trail of Jackalope that you just couldn't make fit. And if 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 so, could you could you share? Would you mind sharing? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Ian, and it's a good thing to tell students because student writers and beginning writers will so often view the stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor as a mistake or a failure. Uh, and there's, there's simply no way to make a book, to make an essay, to make a poem, to make any piece of writing uh, without that willingness to let stuff go. And a metaphor that I sometimes use that kind of helps people to think about this in a way that doesn't suggest failure is like, okay, there are art forms like painting. It's an art of accretion. You have the canvas, you put more and more paint on it, and eventually you've created art. But then there are art forms like sculpture. You start with a block of stone and you chip stuff away. And the beauty and the form emerges not from what you do to it, but from what you take away from it. And writing is both, right? You have to know that it's an art of accretion. Editors have described me as a more is more kind of writer. I like that, you know, piling on layers of stuff. But to make a story work, you have to know what to what to leave out and having the kind of spine to say, I love this thing, but I have to take it away or I won't be able to create the shape that I want. Uh, it's just an essential part of, of being a writer. So this book is um, uh, for, yeah, for, for everything you see on the page, there's probably something on the floor in part because I am the kind of guy who becomes obsessively interested in whatever I'm writing about. And this is a challenge I've faced a lot in my, in my science writing in particular, right? It, maybe I'm writing about pronghorn or maybe I'm writing about scorpions or whatever it is, you know, for a short period of time, I become so immersed in that topic. I learn everything I can about it. And I forget that that super nerd sensibility doesn't translate well to storytelling. I, I By the time I start writing about a scorpion, I think every single person does nothing but wake up every morning <laughs> thinking about this because that's what I'm doing, right? And so, you know, one of the, to give you a single example, Ian, in the science writing part of the book, I always have to say, you know, data doesn't change people's minds. Information doesn't change people's behavior. Stories change the way people think about the world. Stories change the way people think about themselves. How am I going to take the raw data of my scientific research and craft it as a narrative? So, you know, there's pl plenty of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor from this book. Some of them were uh, interviews. Some of them were draft chapters. But a lot of it was the stuff where I was just too nerdy. You know, mm -hmm. I... I want to tell you everything I know about horned rabbits in every African folktale I've ever read. You know, the average reader is not going to sit still for that. So then you have to say, well, which of these stories is most compelling? Or can I create a composite of a couple of these that'll be really energizing and engaging? And, you know, to remind myself that I needed to read and appreciate all those other stories to get to where I wanted to be to tell one story well. Um, so I think you're doing the right thing with your students to to help them always redefine what they take out as part of the part of the art form. Uh, I've never written a book um, that wasn't um, probably proportionately matched with the stuff that had to come out of it. So yeah, you bet. How do you get that clarity when you're so deep into a topic? Like, how do you get perspective when you're that deep to say like this needs to go? Yeah. Do you yeah. just go for a walk? <laughs> Um, actually, somebody else. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should mention going for a walk because um, I walk about 1300 miles a year and I spend a lot of that time working. And in fact, I've written essays about the fact that I edit as I walk. So I'm a big fan of um, editing with the ears as well as the eyes. So I read everything that I write out loud to help me edit it. So yeah. 
you know, I'll be out in the wilderness of the desert. And, you know, if I have a 300 page manuscript I'm working on, I will literally like walk around in the desert for seven hours reading out loud. Um, so I, walking does help a lot. It's part of my practice, part of my writing practice. Um, so it isn't that I have any perspective when I'm down in it. I don't, I have no, no perspective whatsoever. As my family will tell you, I, <laughs> I honestly believe like, oh my God, everybody's life is going to be changed by, yeah. you know, this. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's when I come back up out of it and I start working as an editor and my writing practice is really obsessive and immersive. My editing practice is like I use a different part of my brain, a different part of my heart. Um, and that's when I have to look at stuff and say, okay, nerd, you know, where is the story in this? And because I'm a storyteller and I'm committed to, to narrative, you know, that's my guiding light all the time. It isn't how much did I learn? It isn't proving how smart I am. It isn't how much can I get between two covers of a book? It's how can I tell the story in a way that is going to be engaging? Um, and I try to take a lot of cues from oral narratives. You know, if you if you've listened to people at the bar who can really keep the attention of everybody around them, they're using narrative techniques. Right. And those techniques can be learned and they can be practiced. So um, I, I feel like I work with two very different minds. So I, I have zero perspective when I'm researching and drafting. It all has to come much later when I have some distance. Do you have Paxton with you? Can oh, we yeah. see Paxton? Yeah, sure. Hold on a second. I, I, this will only take a medium. second. All right, perfect. Who's Paxton? Oh. Is this the, his pet jackalope? I think you'll find out. You'll, I find, think out. you'll find out. Okay, so before the big reveal on Paxton, let, let me just tell a quick story about Paxton. As you know from the book, I end the book with a chapter where I'm done with the manuscript. I think my book is done. And then it occurs to me that I've left one stone unturned. I've not tried to make a jackalope myself. So having interviewed these taxidermists in rural South Dakota and Wyoming, I go, I go to the Mission District of San Francisco and take a jackalope making workshop with all these hipsters, who, by the way, Joe, you have a better beard even than a Bay Area it's hipster. High it's high praise. It's high praise. made his is, day. You made his really day. It really is. Yeah. That is saying something. That, it means a lot. Joe, do you want to compliment Mike's yeah, beard? Uh, we talked about it when you were having tech issues. I complimented his hair, his ponytail. Yeah. Reciprocity, you know, love. we have to have more love in the world. Mm -hmm. So anyway, speaking of love in the world, you know, some of you guys are teachers, right? You know that you should be kind to your students, be encouraging to them. That's what I do, right? So I take this taxidermy class and the taxidermist who teaches it is saying constantly in front of everybody in the class, Mike, you are the worst <laughs> student ever. And, and I want to be clear, not just today. I mean, ever. <laughs> Historically. He was so terrible at this. And, and he just repeated this for seven hours, you know? And so I was totally the worst. My jackalope looked awful. It was terrible. But I still had such a blast doing it. But anyway, when it was all done, I came back to Northern Nevada and I took my jackalope Paxton to a professional photographer who's a friend of mine. I said, I need a high-res image of this thing for my book, right? And in the book, as you know, I write about how my jackalope is super shitty, right? It's just terrible. So this guy takes these photographs and I see them and they're beautiful. They're just <laughs> glam shots. Oh and I said, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, I brushed his fur and I, I used the lighting that I use when I shoot debutantes. And then I, 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 you know, I airbrushed it afterwards. And I was like, dude, it's supposed to look super shitty. So Anyway, the, the photograph of Paxton that is in the book makes him look world-class. Mm -hmm. And there he is, baby. <laughs> <laughs> He's beautiful. Yeah, he is. He's good. And, yeah. and notice that this is, this is the more demonic subspecies. With I see, the yeah. Horns. Yes. Yep. For, for our listeners, there is a, a 
Let me give this a best shot. An Oreo colored bunny rabbit. Uh, white He's black. marked like a Holstein. Yeah, a Holstein <laughs> cow for our, for our, for our dairy fans. And um, he, he was a Holstein. Now he's a Holstein. <laughs> yes, he's uh, abbreviated uh, below yes. the chest. Um, and there are two. Yeah, I would say completely demonic horns coming out yeah. of the the top of this uh, creature. Where'd the name come from? It's probably in the book. Yeah, yeah. If if you and read the book about it, no. <laughs> how to talk about books you haven't read, you'd know better than to make that chump mistake. That's why I don't ask questions that could lead to the book. For, for, fortunately, you foregrounded that because I swear to God, my next the next words out of my mouth were going to be, "Well, Nick, if you had had the courtesy you to read the book, to read the book. entirely clear to you, you know, we all have to we have to be true to ourselves. You know, yes. Mike, I think that's the lesson for today. It's like an Emersonian <laughs> commitment to your true identity. Um, yeah, I made him at a place in San Francisco called Paxton Gate. So this is like, you know, name of origin, like he's a fine Cabernet. You know, I always <laughs> wanted to remember that I made him, you know, across the street from the Baptist mission and, you know, down the block from the, you know, the sex toy shop. So I, I wanted to get like the actual name so I would never forget where he came from. I have one last question. Uh, Mike, we're, we're doing this um, this new thing where we find out celebrity, famous person, person of note, what their favorite book is. And uh, we're going to cover that in the future at some point. So at the future, at some point, we'd love to talk about what your favorite book is. Mike, what's your favorite book ever? Do you have a favorite book? It's clearly on the trail of the Jackalope, available now. No, that's not allowed. <laughs> available now. That's so, ours. Support your local bookstores. Uh, you know, other you know other great books are are the nine books I wrote before this one. Those are also uh, those. If, that's my top ten list right there. That is my top ten list. You're right closing there. out a perfect. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, exactly. Uh, no, I'll I'll recommend two books to you for two completely different reasons. Um, as a person who loves natural history writing from the American West, I always want to endorse the work of a writer named Ellen Malloy, who is no longer with us, and she writes the funniest smartest, most lyrical creative nonfiction about the American West ever. And the book I'd recommend to you is called The Anthropology of Turquoise. And I describe that book as the book I would have written if I could have, but I will never be able to. It's it's very, very beautiful. And the other book I want to recommend to you, Nick, specifically. All right, I'm uh, listening. Because, yeah, no, this is really, this is this is a custom recommendation for you. Oh my God. I, I don't think the other guys will need this. You, you're going to need this one. <laughs> And this is an actual book called um, How to Talk About Books You've Never Read. Oh, no, no, and Mike, no. It is, it, it is, it is written by a superpowers. No. <laughs> it is written by a French philosopher, and it's really erudite. And I can tell you're a smart guy. But when you are done reading this book, you'll never need to either read another book ever or feel guilty about not reading one because you will be so hip to how to talk about books you haven't read. It's a great, great book. I'll see you guys later. Yeah, because right. <laughs> that's the you know that you know that feeling when you're in conversation, somebody starts talking about a book, and you think, okay, do I admit I haven't read it and look like a dumbass, or right. do I just pretend I've read it and hope I can get through this without being exposed? Mm -hmm. This book will give you everything you need, so you have no anxiety <laughs> about those moments at all. Mike, I think um, my cover's blown, but I will read this book. <laughs> I, I, I love this. Is, my, Mike has just written like our, our series finale for whenever that is. <laughs> wonder if you could answer the question you ask everyone. Why do you think people love jackalopes? Yeah, that was really fun in this book. As Ian is, is uh, suggesting, I ended every interview, whether it was with a 
world-class oncologist or whether it was with a crypto zoologist who was out chasing Bigfoot, you know, um, and everybody in between. Why do you think people love jackalopes? And what was interesting is nobody ever questioned mm. the question. Nobody ever said, I don't think everybody does love jackalopes. They just assumed uh -oh. that, um, <laughs> which I think is true. But the range of answers to this question were vast. And, um, you know, people see what they want to see. My favorite answer to that question in the book, and I loved it so much that I I appropriated this as a chapter title is um, this this woman in Wyoming who I was interviewing. And, you know, my last question was, why do you think people love jackalopes? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, because they're as real as you want them to be. And I really love that because, you know, when people ask me, you know, they kind of get wind of the book and they say, well, you know, is the jackalope mythological or is it real? I always say yes. And, you know, I think that we, we need to live in a world where we have direct visceral engagement with the physical world, with nature, but we also can't roll out of bed in the morning and get through the day without a good fantasy, a good active imagination. We, we depend on that for our, our survival. And there's a reason why every culture in the world has these invented and hybrid animals in their folklore, because they're necessary. We need them. Uh, and I think the reason the jackalope exists and prospers is uh, we created it because we need it and it'll exist as long as we continue to. So, you know, my answer to why people love jackalopes is um, that it allows us to think of the work of the imagination as real work, uh, not just as an escape, um, not as a deviation from things that are true, uh, but that the imagination is also true, that it's a form of creativity that we can't live without. And I think the jackalope kind of embodies that. He's a hybrid figure, a trickster figure. He moves between the real and imaginary worlds in ways that I think we all would like to a little more fluidly if we could manage it. That's awesome. The book is On the Trail of the Jackalope, How a Legend Captured the World's Imagination and Helped Us Cure Cancer. Uh, thanks, Mike, for being with us here today. You can get this uh, get this book uh, in your local bookstore. I guess you can probably get it elsewhere, but... Yeah, buy local. It's also available as an audiobook, uh, available through Audible. Um, Mike, I wonder if uh, usually on the show um, we have this competition format, and and, and the the winner, uh, Joe or I, gets to read a victory quote. Um, when we have a, we have a cop out <laughs> episode like today where we both read the same book, um, uh, one of us one of us or one of the other of us reads a quote. But since we have you here, I wonder if you could if you'd be willing or putting you on the spot to to share a, a passage um, that, that you feel captures the spirit of, of your book or alternatively, just something you want to read. That's fine too. Um, so this is just the first part of the author's note at the very beginning of the book. And this is called down the rabbit hole. I wish I could say exactly where I was when I first saw a jackalope. I was just a kid. And my initial response to the odd bunny was grinning fascination. I recall wondering if the animal was real and hoping like hell that it was, but also realizing that even if it wasn't, something wonderful was before my eyes. What charmed me most was the way the hybrid horned rabbit crossed boundaries, refusing to be either this thing or that thing, a form of resistance any kid struggling to navigate the adult world can appreciate. It also seemed to satirize the genre of the hunting trophy mount a form of nature commemoration that even as a boy, I had trouble comprehending. The jackalope struck me as inherently playful, at once cute and funny, 
but still out to fool you if it could. Like all good humorists, the jackalope always keeps a straight face, taking itself seriously, no matter how much it might make us laugh. Since my boyhood introduction to the jackalope, my appreciation for this bizarre creature has deepened immeasurably. The jackalope is now ubiquitous in American culture. Everywhere I travel, I see jackalope mounts, jackalope kitsch and art, bumper stickers and postcards, beer and whiskey, bands and songs, teams and clubs, bars and restaurants. Unlike many other widely disseminated cultural phenomena, think Disney here, nobody owns the jackalope and no corporation or person is entitled to control its production, distribution, or interpretation. The jackalope's like a plant whose burr catches on your sock and hitches a ride to its next home. Only the plant is comic folk art, and its burr instead catches your imagination, convincing you to blow 10 bucks on a jackalope shot glass that you just can't help but bring home. Anybody who's bought a Save the Jackalopes t-shirt or stuck a stamp on a tacky jackalope postcard or shared a funny jackalope image on social media has unwittingly been a vector of the horned rabbit's viral transmission. Because the jackalope also migrates through narrative, I meet plenty of people who claim to have seen one and who will regale me with extravagant stories that are always worth the price of a pint. As a storyteller myself, what I love about the jackalope is that there's such a rich story behind it, and yet more layers of narrative behind even that story still to be discovered. Once endemic to the American West, the jackalope has spread far beyond its home range and now inhabits the broader culture. Embodying animal hybridity in a fascinating comical way that tests credulity, generates legends, and captivates the imagination, the irresistible horned rabbit is a beloved staple of popular culture, folklore, and humor around the globe. But the jackalope is much more than an article of iconic kitsch. Its connection to horned hares in nature leads us beyond hoax, humor, and folk narrative into a scientific quest to save human lives by understanding the viruses that cause growths on rabbits and cancers in people. I am seeking the real story behind the strangest, funniest, most weirdly appealing animal ever invented. I have been obsessed with this little beast for decades and I've at last committed myself unconditionally to its discovery. As a result, I am about to go down a fascinating rabbit hole. I am on the trail of the true tale of the jackalope. My quest is to understand how a peculiar horned rabbit, born of the inventiveness of a couple of kids in Depression-era rural Wyoming, ended up capturing the world's imagination, and how the study of its real-life counterpart, the horned hare, resulted in Nobel Prize-winning research that ultimately led to development of the world's safest and most effective anti-cancer vaccine. Thank you.